morning, everyone. Thank you for the invitation to come and join you today here in our worship uh, worship hours on Sunday morning. Uh, I have never been here before. This is my first time for a worship service, but I feel very connected to this church, having known several of your former ministers. We were a number of us were friends growing up through Bible college and um, very, very good friends. David Stokes uh, and I have been together for years and years. Uh, also, I wanted to mention that uh, Ken and Ramona are our relatives. Uh, Ken and I married sisters, basically, and uh, he is one of my personal mentors and very close friend, one of my closest ministry brothers. Uh, also, we have another connection in that the man that I listen to preach every Sunday is Darren Morante, and Darren is my pastor. And I will tell you that you should really be proud of uh, whatever you did in his life when he was here. Because he was, uh, he is an amazing leader, a great preacher, and a real lover of the Lord, and uh, one of our closest friends as well. And I saw him just a couple of days before I uh, I, I came up, and um, he and his wife are doing fine. So I feel like there are some connections, even though this is really kind of my first uh, visit here on a Sunday morning. I would like to take our sermon time today and focus on just a, a thought that will lead us to our conclusion. But the idea I want to share with you this morning deals with the single-mindedness of Jesus. You know, the fact that when Jesus came to earth, he understood and knew he had one major thing to accomplish, and his entire life was focused on accomplishing that, that major goal. When I was uh, uh, younger, I preached for eight years in Boulder, Colorado. Boulder is 30 miles north of Denver, just incredibly beautiful city. And I found out that our, all of our churches in Colorado had a church camp in a place called Como, uh, Colorado. And the thing I didn't understand is that uh, Camp Como was about 8,500 feet above sea level. Now, Kentucky is, I think, about 800 feet, and Denver is 5,200 feet, and uh, the camp was about 8,500 feet. I was invited to come there to work a high school week of camp, which uh, I, I love doing, and um, when I arrived, just in the back of the beautiful campground, just in the back of the camp is a mountain called Mount Baldy. That's what they call it because it's above the tree level at 14,000 feet. And in the camp culture, every Thursday, anybody who wants to can climb Mount Baldy in the afternoon. And so they came to me and said, would you like to go with our group to climb Mount Baldy? And I said, sure, uh, that would be fine. So little did I know, however, that uh, we were at 8,500 feet, which was manageable, but I just had no experience with, with peaks that were 14,000 feet. And we actually did pretty well. A number of us from the Midwest were all there. We did pretty well until about, about 10, 11,000 feet. And then the only problem with that height is that there is simply no oxygen up there. And so we got up to that point. All of a sudden, I began to really feel it. And uh, I was just breathing as hard as I could. And... Uh, a number of the people who were in my group also, same thing. And so what we started doing was saying, okay, let's get to that rock up there. Then we would all get to the rock, and most of us would lay down on the ground then for a while. And we'd get up and say, okay, let's make it to that tree. And we literally made the last couple of thousand feet just by taking one level at a time, having one goal at a time, until we finally got to the very top of the mountain. And I have to tell you that one of the most beautiful, majestic sights I've ever witnessed in my life was there uh, on the top of Mount Baldy. As just around the church camp, and many of the miles, 
was this fabulous ring of rocky mountains covered in snow. And uh, when we got up there, uh, we were so moved. We sang, How Great Thou Art, and just had a wonderful season of prayer uh, there at Mount Baldy. I still remember that to this day. Now, the story I'm telling you with the struggles and the stresses we had is very, very minimal compared, uh, goes with the idea, but it's very minimal compared to the heart of what we want to talk about today. The issue is this, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, did come to earth and experienced many, many obstacles and struggles in, in finishing his goal. Very interesting. Uh, in the book of Luke, he writes in chapter 13, and he, he says this, he says, Pharisees came to Jesus and said, go away and leave this area because Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, I perform healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I accomplished my goal. I accomplished my goal. Jesus was just very, very aware of the fact that he was here, very specifically, to save the world through his blood, and focused on that and finally accomplished that goal for sure. There were many attempts to stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission over and over again, and that's what we want to focus on today. I'd like to take a look at four different instances where people and situations tried to stop Jesus from ultimately, ultimately doing what God had called him here to do. So these four are very simple. I'll just lay them out and discuss them one at a time and set a backdrop for the end of our sermon. The very first attempt to thwart Jesus in fulfilling his mission came from Satan right at the very beginning of his public ministry. I know that many of you know the story of, in Matthew of Jesus being baptized by John. And it says immediately after his baptism, the Holy Spirit came. And the, the Greek word there is that it kind of forced him. It drove him into the wilderness. If you go to Israel, or if you've been there, you know this fact. When, when you look at the nation of Israel, the top half of the nation is very green, very lush, a lot of rain, a lot of water. And that's where most of their crops are grown. You get down about 20 or 30 miles below Jerusalem into the Jericho Dead Sea area, and everything is desert. It's interesting to me, it's all tan. The sand is tan, the rocks are tan, it's just this stark desert. That's where Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to spend 40 days in prayer and fasting, just really planning what his public ministry was going to look like. When he is there, Scripture tells us that at the end of his time, a very unique thing takes place. Let me just read this for us and remind us of this text. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Matthew writes and says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, then he became hungry. Then he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The devil said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, get behind me, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, very interesting story here. At the very beginning of his ministry, that's what we need to see. The very start of his ministry, Satan appears to Jesus and tempts him in three ways. Now, just reading the text here, you might think this is about bread and about the, the, the temple and so forth, but it has a much, much deeper meaning. Uh, Jesus is trying to be tempted not to go to the cross and be the savior of the world through some other means than the shedding of his blood. And when Satan comes to Jesus and says, turn these stones into bread, what he was meaning was, take the social road around the cross, and, and you don't have to go through that. You know, people are hungry. They, they, they will eat bread, and if you provide all of the social needs they have, they'll make you their king. And then when he talked about the fact of jumping off the pinnacle, this is the religious road. The, the devil was saying, the Satan was saying uh, to Jesus, you know, in terms of having everyone in your kingdom uh, just offer religion, offer more religion, and, peop and people will not put you on the cross. And the third temptation here, falling down and worship him, was the political road. Satan said, if you will fall down and worship me, I will give you all of, all of the people of the earth. Now the question is, had Jesus done that, could Satan deliver on that promise? And the answer to that question is, yes, he could have. When Satan was kicked out of heaven for his sin and rebellion, he, he landed on earth, and he became the Lord of the earth here. He became the uh, prince of the, of the air and could have actually delivered to Jesus what he had promised. And at that point, of course, Jesus helped him to clearly understand that he had a mission. He was going to, to finish that mission and, and would not go anywhere that God was not leading him. And so we see that the very first issue that Jesus faced in terms of being led away from his mission was to take these other alternative things that Satan wanted to do. Now, Jesus very clearly sets his face and knows what he needs to accomplish. So Satan provided the first attempts to get Jesus not to fulfill his mission. The second idea is simply this. It would be the interruption of his own family. The interruption of his own family. This is a milder illustration as opposed to what Satan did here, but still a point to be made. In Matthew 12, the writer talks about the fact that the Pharisees um, uh, were present, of course, in all of Jesus' ministry. And while Jesus is teaching them and teaching the crowds, his family arrives to spend time with him. Matthew 12, 46 through 50. He writes and says, While Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside. Jesus was teaching in a house, standing outside seeking to speak to him. Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my, my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. He said, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Family came to visit Jesus. They, they weren't being rude. But they arrived, they couldn't get to him, and so they kind of sent word in and said, hey, we're, we're out here, anytime you want to stop and visit with us. And Jesus, in a very uh, respectful and very gentle way, basically said, I know you're here, and, and I will see you as soon as I'm done, you know, but I have this wonderful opportunity, 
opportunity to teach all of these people about the kingdom of God, and, and I can't be deterred from this. I must, must finish this. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you that Satan will use anything he possibly can to deter us from allowing the will of God to be done in our lives. The third group that's important to point out here is simply the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and the religious leaders of the day. I know I don't have to tell you today how much they tried to stop Jesus' work and tried to stop his ministry. In Luke 22, verses 1 and 2, uh, just taking out of all the passages we could talk about, just taking this one nugget out, Luke writes and says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. <clears throat> In Luke 6, we see a very powerful text where Jesus heals a, a man with a withered hand in, on the Sabbath in front of the Pharisees and many, many other Jews. And in doing so, they were publicly humiliated by the fact that they were criticizing Jesus about performing this wonderful miracle on the Sabbath. And at the end of that text, it says this, and the Pharisees were enraged at what Jesus had done and were seeking a way to kill him. Now, the Greek word there for enraged doesn't mean that they were just really angry or, or that they were, they were frustrated. It means that they were angry with rage, totally beside themselves. It's a very powerful word here saying, you know, the, the, the Pharisees simply wanted to do away with Jesus. That was their goal. There's so many places we could read and take a look at this. You know their pattern in trying to, to do away with, with our Savior. They were so opposed to Jesus because he continually was exposing their mass hypocrisy and their arrogance. Now, understand that among the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, there were many of them who were very, very, very religious and really loved God. They were very sincere in their worship of God and in their serving him. But there was a large body of Pharisees, and they were interested in two things, money and power. That was the main thing they were focused on. And Jesus, over and over again, called them out and accused them of being whited sepulchers and being snakes even, various things like that. Well, they wanted, of course, to kill Jesus. They tried to trap him with questioning. They tried to malign his name and reputation. They tried over and over again to catch him in a mistake and to, and to humiliate him. When none of that worked, they simply accused him, lied about him until they saw to his death on the cross. These religious leaders were always trying to stop the ministry that Jesus was performing. But we know that Jesus persevered through all of their attempts and just continued on and continued doing what he was doing, even though the religious leaders of the day were really trying to do everything they could to stop him. Now, the third group, very interesting, is simply his own disciples. The fourth group is simply his own disciples. This is very interesting. Out of all the groups, the fact that his own disciples would be trying to stop and, and impede what he wanted to do, po quite possibly without really knowing the ramifications. But I chose this text. Uh, this is Mark 8, 31 through 33, just to give us an example uh, of what I'm talking about. And Mark writes and says, And Jesus began to teach them, talking to the disciples here, that the Son of Man, his favorite word to describe himself, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. He was stating the matter plainly. And so the gospel writer says, Jesus gets the disciples together and he says this, 
I know this is going to be really hard for you to understand. Let me just explain how the next several days is going to play out. Uh, I am going to be arrested, go through a fake trial. I will be tortured, I will be crucified, and I will die. But I will, I will resurrect on the third day. And I think obviously we all know that their complete understanding of this was clouded by the Lord. God did not want them to get a full grasp of what was happening. But at, upon hearing that, Peter, out of all the 12 apostles, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. I want you to stop there just a minute and think about that. Here's Peter, and of course, who else would it be out of the disciples, you know? Here's Peter, hearing what Jesus said. Peter takes Jesus and moves over to the side, and he says, Jesus, you never make a mistake. But we just have to, we just have to tell you that this is not going to happen. We are not going to let this happen. He said, Jesus, as a matter of fact, I'll go, I'll go to prison with you. As a matter of fact, I, 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 I will die with you if it takes that. And I think Jesus would have said to Peter, Peter, I appreciate your enthusiasm. I know your heart is so right. I know you love me. But can I just mention to you that before the rooster crows uh, 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 three times later on this evening, uh, you, you'll deny on three occasions you even know me. You all, even his disciples, I think that also one of the greatest struggles Jesus may have had in all of his, that last week of his life, was being in the garden, seeing the men with swords and spears and torches coming toward him, knowing that the process was now going to begin of him losing his life uh, in the garden. In this particular instance, uh, Peter does take a sword out and goes after one of the men who came, and in the midst of all that, Jesus calls them off and says, you know, please, this is not how my kingdom is supposed to be. And in that moment then, when the disciples understood that Jesus was not going to fight physically, all 11 of them ran away and left him there in the, in the torch-lit darkness uh, with his captors. I, I know that the disciples loved Jesus. I know they were committed to him. But even his disciples, you know, are, are creating a problem here in terms of him honestly actually finishing his goal. So we see that from these four groups, you know, from Satan, from his family, from the Pharisees, from, from even the disciples, that there were numerous attempts to stop Jesus from accomplishing what God had called him to do. And brothers and sisters, this is an incredible background as we shift gears now and go into the last segment of my sermon, which is simply this. I want to remind you that Satan will do everything he possibly can to stop us from accomplishing the will of God on earth. And there are two ways I want us to look at that. First of all, please understand that he pursues individuals very much so. He pursues individual people, men and women, teenagers. I mean, he, he, he wants to pursue you personally. Jesus himself said, here are the goals of Satan in your life. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy Satan wants to kill you if he possibly can. Uh, he, he wants to steal your children and destroy your life in, in, every way, in every way he can. Interesting that Jesus would describe him in that way. So the point is this. When you, are, when you and I were outside of Christ and we were not believers, Satan had us in his camp and, and that took care of that. 
But once we gave our heart to Jesus Christ and we began serving him and drawing close to him, growing in our faith and in our relationship to him, then the bells and whistles went off in Satan's mind about needing to do everything he could to not allow that to happen in our lives. Brothers and sisters, even to this day, just trust me, you know, this, the last thing Satan wants is for you to be here this morning. The last thing he wants is for you to take opportunity to meet with Jesus every day in his word and in a time of prayer. And just tell you from, I can just tell you from experience, you know, the Satan will continue to pursue us and to do everything he can to stop our personal growth, to stop our work. After, even after we have been secure in Christ, he will continue to tempt us and to work on us in every way possible. When I was, uh, in, I was in Atlanta, Georgia for eight years, teaching at Atlanta Christian College a uh, number of years ago, a woman in our church came to me. I, I, was, I planted a church there also and stayed on with them part-time on their staff. One of our women came to me and said, I have a serious question I want to ask you, a serious request. My husband is not a believer. He's not horribly opposed to the church. He just doesn't think, doesn't think he needs it. Could you spend some time with him and just see if you could encourage him and, and begin to get him on the right path? And so I said, yeah, give me his phone number. I'll be glad to call him. So I called Brian Pickett and uh, said, your wife mentioned you to me. Well, we're just wondering if you'd like to have breakfast next week. And he was agreeable and said, yeah, sure, I'll meet you. Where do you want to meet? So Brian Pickett and I met every Wednesday morning for six months. He, he, he was a hard nut, I will tell you. For six months, we met every single week at this diner. And I just befriended him and shared the gospel with him. And we talked about his doubts. We talked about the sin in his life and all of these struggles. And brothers and sisters, I'll never forget the morning, totally unaware, was caught completely flat-footed when I was sitting there with a cup of coffee waiting for him. He came in and sat down and he said, Dave, I have to begin by telling you what I did last night. And I said, well, tell me. And he said, uh, after all of our conversations and the, the scriptures you gave me to read and my wife's encouragement, he said, uh, uh, I, I was just so taken with all of that. And it was in my mind and on my heart. He said, last night I, I went into our bedroom while my wife was watching TV and I just shut the door. And he said, I knelt down on my, uh, on my knees by our bed and I prayed and I gave my life to Jesus for the very first time. And I said, Brian, that's, I'm so glad to hear that. That's music to my ears. Three weeks after that breakfast, I got a telephone call from the secretary at our church. I was at the school. And she said, David, you have to know, Brian, Brian's house is totally engulfed in flames. And I think you need to get over there. And so I drove over and I got there. It was this horrific scene. You can imagine it. The, the fire trucks, the lights you know, going on. Uh, huge hoses, guys in yellow, yellow outfits, you know, spraying the house, and uh, just so heartbreaking. And I went to him, and I said, Brian, Brian and Judy, I I'm so sorry about this. Do you, do you know what happened? And uh, they later found out that he cut the grass and put his riding mower right under the wood staircase that went up to the main part of their house. There was a leak in the gas tank, and the gas leaked down on the manifold, which caught the mower on fire, which then went right up through the middle of his house, in those two, two wooden staircases, and they lost everything. Got the cars out, but not a whole lot more than that. As I was standing there with Brian, he said to me, Dave, I know what's going on. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? And he said, I know what's going on. I, I know why this is happening. He said, Satan is doing everything 
in my early years in Christ, my early days in Christ, doing everything he can to dissuade me and to make me blame God for this. But he said, I've really thought about it, and here's what I think. This is going to make me stronger, not weaker. I will not be deterred from moving forward in my faith, even if, if the house burns down or whatever. And I have to tell you, I thought to myself, you know, not bad from a guy who was just baptized three weeks ago, you know. That's exactly where we need to be. Brothers and sisters, I have ten more of those stories you know, where Satan goes after someone and will use all kinds of things to tear us down. He will use doubt. He will use fear. He will use difficulties, personal problems. Let me just say that Satan will use temptation in your life like you can't believe. He truly will. Or he'll use criticism, or maybe it's depression. Financial problems come roaring into our lives, and we're really struggling. Some kind of a serious loss or a serious tragedy. He'll use any of these things to try to stop us. But I want to go on then to this, this final thought about the fact that Satan not only goes after individuals, brothers and sisters, Satan goes after churches as well. About 27 years ago, I got a telephone call from a group of elders, and they said, we're wondering if you could come and help us at our church. We're facing a real dilemma, and we don't know what to do. And so I drove to this church, and that was the beginning of a 27-year um, uh, 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 participation in consulting with churches and helping them through difficult times. And, uh, you know, I've just seen so many different situations, so many, so many opportunities. Here's one thing, brothers and sisters, I know about Satan. Satan's greatest delight is to attack a church in such a way that he'll slow the church down, but that's not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is to divide the church and ultimately destroy it if he possibly can. Here's what I know about Satan after doing serious business with him for 73 years. Satan is a dirty street fighter. I'm sorry if, that, if that's too straight. That's just the truth. He's a dirty street fighter. He, he will use any and every tool at his disposal to pull us away from Christ, to destroy missions around the world, and to break in half any church he possibly can. He, does, he, he t attacks individual congregations, especially, especially if he feels that the church can do great damage to his kingdom of darkness. He attacks in the following way. Satan will always, always, always bring disunity to the life of a church. Please, listen to me today. One of his main tools is to create disunity. I've seen it in all, kinds, in all kinds of ways. If Satan can just get one of the elders' wives mad at the church janitor, you know? You know what I mean? If you can just get two deacons to really get crossways and, and be angry with each other. I, I, I don't know how many meetings I've had where it's been the minister and two elders against the youth minister and two elders. And it's World War III. Now, when he comes in and begins to get a niche, when he, when he cuts a hole and the hole gets bigger and bigger, brothers and sisters, I'm just telling you, if that is allowed to go on unabated, I have seen really healthy churches that were alive completely split in half and set back 20 years in their progress. And Satan does it over and over and over again. Let me tell you this today. One of Satan's main tools to stop the kingdom of God is in any way he can to create this unity in the lives of the people in a congregation. You know, I don't want to tell you today about the meetings I've been in between Christians where the anger level was out the ceiling and, and people are, are, are livid with one another and, and 
one particular case, an elder picked up his Bible on the table and threw it against the wall uh, 10 feet away, so angry. You know, I, this is terrible. I hate to talk about this in, in, in this holy place, but to see Christians who, who know Jesus Christ standing in a room with red faces, shouting and screaming, even using profanity against each other. I'm just saying to myself, you know, how, how could this possibly happen? And you know, when those things take place, let me tell you what happens, brothers and sisters. Satan stands over in the corner. He's over in the corner. And when people are doing that to one another as, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, when they're doing that, you know what Satan does? He just applauds. He applauds and he laughs. And he says, I have been doing this to churches for 2,000 years, and they never get it. They never understand what I'm doing. And it goes on and on and on and on. And I've seen churches take 20 years to recover from splits, 20 years to recover from people who are not forgiving, 10, 15, 20 years for them to get back where they needed to be and really begin fulfilling the mission that God has called them to do. Now, I know that I'm a guest here today, and I don't want to go where I'm not supposed to go. But after a lot of prayer, I want to take just a minute, if I could, right now, and just share my heart with you about where the church here is this particular Sunday morning. We know what it is that we're supposed to do as believers in Christ. Our leadership, our staff, wonderful people who make up this congregation. We're supposed to win the lost, supposed to nurture the saved, reach young people, reach adults with the gospel of Christ, <clears throat> take care of our senior saints, support missions around the world, and the list just goes on and on. And I know this church has actually an amazing future in terms of what could be accomplished. But brothers and sisters, I want to ask you to just think about one particular thought with me as we come down to the end of my message. Just think deeply with me, would you please? Would you just trust me in this moment? Here's the question. In the midst of our present situation, how does Jesus want you personally to respond? Would you think with me for just a minute? It's a very tough situation. Very tough. A lot of really, really deep levels of emotion are happening in the lives of a lot of people in this congregation. You know, pro and con. It's very, very difficult. I want you to know that this is, a, this is a very, very dangerous time in the life of this congregation because Satan is right at the door. He's lurking right at the door, and if he can get a toehold, if he can just get one place where he can get in, he can do massive damage that will take years and years to recover from. And so I know that it's hard. I know that it's tough. I know there is a lot of disappointment and a lot of frustration, I understand. But brothers and sisters, the life of this church and the future of this church literally is in the balance this Sunday morning and, and, and the coming days. And the question I want you to ask yourself, deep in your heart, don't worry about anybody else around you. This is just between you and the Lord today. The question is this, how does Jesus want me to respond to what's happening in the life of my church? What does he want me to do? How, how does he want me to react? And I just want to ask you to pray about that, to take it before the Lord, to search your heart, and, and to follow what the Lord leads you to do in this particular situation. 
let me just tell you that Jesus himself said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's the bottom line. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And Satan understands that principle, and one of the main things he wants to do is divide us in any way we can. Brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, God has commissioned this church when it was planted. Decades and decades ago, when this church was started, God commissioned this church to be a light for the gospel and a place where people could find salvation. And that's exactly still his heart to this very day. So I simply want to encourage you to open your heart to where the Holy Spirit is leading you. And to understand that Satan, Satan is right at the door. He's ready to pounce if we open the door. I want you to guard your heart. Really, really, really think this through. And I, in, in my case, I just always say to myself, I always want to be part of the solution and never part of the problem. So let me encourage you to think about Jesus focused on accomplishing his mission, didn't let anything stop him, and we have a mission here today. And the mission is a healthy, vibrant church that could really impact this city and this county and ultimately the world for Jesus Christ. Uh, I've been in this consulting ministry for years, been with several hundred churches, over 800 churches over the last 27 years. And let me tell you what I know about this church. I know that this church has an incredible potential, good leadership, good staff, so many wonderful, mature Christian people in this congregation. I think that you are set, you are ready to go ahead. Question, do you think this church could run 1,500 sometime in the coming years? Really, let me, let me tell you, I, I really, I don't know anything about plumbing or flying a plane, but I know the church. Church has been my life, you know, for, for the last 54 years. There are many elements in the life of this congregation that tell me that this church has an incredible future. Could this, could this church run 2,000 someday? Uh, listen, listen to me. Yes, it could. With the right organization, right movement, right, and so forth, yeah, the, the, the potential to do that is certainly here to make that happen. And Satan knows that, and he will do everything he possibly can to stop that from ever happening on his watch. Brothers and sisters, open your heart today to what the Lord Jesus is telling you in terms of an answer to that question. Open your spirit. I'm calling you to obedience. I want you to obey whatever he's asking you to do, whatever he's leading you to do. And just know that the Lord is with you. The Lord knows what's going on in the life of our congregation here. He's the great shepherd. You know, he'll strengthen us, take care of us. And I just pray that God's richest blessing will be on you as a congregation and as an individual uh, as, as we move through these coming weeks together. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be around your table and to remember the broken body of Jesus our Lord, to sing these songs, and Father, to look at your word to see what it teaches us in all situations. Father, I want to thank you for the elders and staff of this church, for the wonderful people who make up this congregation, all the volunteers who serve so faithfully every week. Father, I pray that you would keep Satan from this congregation, that he would not have his way in this church. And I pray that our family here would gather together and unify and be strong and, and have a lot of communication and discussions and talk and whatever we need to do to help us during this time. But Father, please don't let Satan have his way in this, in this congregation. Please protect us. Please guard us. Please put your shields around us, Father, so that we can emerge 
and really fulfill the mission you have called us to do. Father, give us your blessing and your presence and your love, we ask in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.